holy gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Luke. Glory Glory to you, Lord Christ. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the most high will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called holy, the son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. The gospel of the Lord. Praise Praise be to you, Lord Christ. Merry Christmas, everyone. Let's begin praying together. Father, your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. And so I pray, give us eyes to see it and give us ears to hear it. And then give us a heart that would want to follow you all the days of our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, On this, the eve of the day that we celebrate the birthday of Jesus... I thought I would talk about my birthday. I was born March 9th, 1982 at 5.35 p.m. in Wichita Falls, Texas. And I was 8 pounds, 12 ounces, which you might be thinking is rather chubby, but it was the cute baby kind of chubby. And I entered life headfirst and made the process as easy as possible for my small half-Italian mother, Carolyn Testa Baker, And despite what my two older sisters will tell you, it was irrefutably the best day of her then 32-year-old life. (laughs) If she was with you today, she'd tell you I've been taking on life a bit headstrong ever since. My sisters would as well. But you know, something else is going on simultaneously at the exact same time as my birthday. Something darker and something different. Soviet forces had killed thousands of Afghans with poison gas and chemical weapons. Civilians, men, women, and children mutilated and disfigured. And this gassing was really just one day in the larger Soviet-Afghan war. It spanned the entire decade of the 1980s. Some of you probably remember it. Some of you weren't born yet. 
By 1989, over a million civilian Afghans had been killed by atrocious means. Over a million men, women, and children. You might think this is a strange Christmas message, but there's, there's two contradictory events that are happening in the exact same day at the exact same time. And it's kind of like today, having the fourth Sunday of Advent coincide with Christmas Eve where one event is characterized by lingering shadow and the other by undeniable light. One is characterized by waiting and by longing and the other by arrival and fulfillment. And it just so happens that this actually provides the perfect example of what our Advent sermon series has been about this entire time. It's this unavoidable tension of living in between these two seemingly contradictory times, experiencing that contradiction in our lives, If you're a believer, you live in this life as a beloved exile. Two things that don't seem to go together. We are simultaneously deeply loved, and yet we are deeply longing at the exact same time. We're in the world, and yet we're not of this world or completely at home in this world. And the missing things in our lives that we long for, or even the things that are present that over time just don't work anymore, they create this deep sense of yearning for something greater, something new, for a better world. Where the default would be light instead of darkness and righteousness instead of wickedness and really where it would be more Christmassy and less Adventy. Where God's promise would finally come true. And it's no wonder then that the theological virtue that both Advents share in common is the theological virtue of hope. Hope is a, it's a common human experience. We're hardwired for it. It surfaces at the beginning of something new, like as with a newborn child whose whole life is ahead of them. But it also is required for the difficulties of life that we might not be crushed by them, but might endure through them, that we would hold on to hope, that we would cling to hope. It begs us to look forward through life's shadows to brighter and better days, to not lose it, And what we see here is it's important to Peter too. It's actually what he does when he begins his writings. He talks about hope. Blessed be God who has caused us to be born again to a living hope. 1 Peter 1, verse 3, a living hope. Now, that sounds a bit different from worldly hope. Worldly hope really is just future well-wishing. There's no guarantees. That sounds something like, I hope I get the job. Or I hope to get married one day. Or I hope my children will turn out all right. Or I hope I have enough money to get by. Or I hope I die a peaceful kind of death. Or maybe even I hope that Santa will bring me five gifts tomorrow morning. Highly unlikely. Santa is not that generous. You're hoping, you're well-wishing, but without any guarantee. But Christian hope's different, Peter says. It's better than worldly hope. He calls it a living hope. That means it's not just a hope that's alive. It's a hope that won't die. You can be alive and yet die. But the Christian hope is a living, won't die kind of hope because it's attached to a promise that actually has already been partially fulfilled. In the first advent, in Christmas, That Christ the Messiah has come, 
And subsequently, he died for us and then raised from the dead for us, and he appeared to over 500 people just to prove that it's true. But then there's the unfinished part, the waiting part for the second advent, when Christ the Messiah says he will come again and finish the promise. And so he's, he's come once, and he's promised to come again, and here we are 2,000 years and change later, waiting. So where is he? Cue Cindy Lou Who's tiny voice. Where are you, Christmas? Why can't I find you? Why have you gone away? Where is the laughter you used to bring me? Why can't I hear music play? Where in the world is he? And that question is at the heart of this passage today in 2 Peter. It's at the heart of Advent in general, and it's a question I'm sure some of you have been asking for a long time. Because of the lingering shadows of life, because of the disappointments of life, because of the uncertainties of life. And Peter is exhorting beloved exiles, all 2,000 years and change of us, to consider God's patience and then our preparation. So first, God's patience. Verses 8 to 10, if you look at your bulletin of Peter's second letter, it's, it's really a short treatise on God's timing. And it tells us that time is not the same for God as it is for us. It says a day to him is a thousand years, and a thousand years is just one day. And as a matter of fact, Scripture mostly speaks of time as something that God controls and something God commands. Okay? He's not confined by time. He's actually commanding. He declares the end from the beginning and from ancient times things that have not yet come to pass. That's Isaiah 46.10. He is from everlasting to everlasting, and his counsel will stand. That's Psalm 90, verse 2. That he is the king of the ages, eternal, immortal, invisible, all-wise. That's 1 Timothy 1.17. And so scripture presents that to him, yes, a day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years really is one day. And though we can't relate in one sense at all to this, because we're confined in time. We do speak this way sometimes, metaphorically, about our lives. That there's some days that seem to last for years. And then there's some years that seem to fly by as if they were only a day long. And often the difference for us depends on whether it's misery or joy. Misery seems to be unending. It overwhelms us. When it exists, it seems to be the most prevalent thing. And joy, so fleeting, so passing, and so quick. And so what we wish for actually is a reality where the opposite is true, where misery is temporary and joy is unending. And perhaps that's actually how God sees it. And perhaps that's exactly what Jesus intends to do, that he's always intended for misery to be temporary and joy eternal. And it's actually what he promised when he comes back again. Listen to this. Behold, I'm coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay for each one for what he has done. I am the alpha and the omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. And I will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. Behold, I make all things 
new. In the first advent, Jesus comes as a baby in a manger. He's vulnerable and he's meek and he's mild. But not so when he returns the second time. He comes as a warrior on a horse, leading the hosts of heaven to return and to reclaim and to, re- to renew the entire cosmos, not just humankind, but the entire created order. And this rescue includes those who believe when he removes the power of sin and the shroud of darkness. It's for those who are waiting for him, for those who hope in him. Every vestige and every consequence of evil completely removed for all time. That's what the human heart longs for. But his timing feels way off. He seems far too slow. 2,000 years and change kind of slow. And yet this slowness we perceive actually has something to do with the promise itself. Peter helps us. Look again at verse 9. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Peter tells us, God, he's not slow, but he's patient. And these are not the same thing. That we aren't the only ones waiting for something. God's waiting for something too. And in his waiting, he's not withholding and he's not refusing, but he's inviting, he's extending, he's pursuing. What we're told is that it's his mercy that's causing the delay. It's the very mercy of God that's making him wait. His deep desire that you not perish is regulating the timeline. Now that's an important thought. It's a crucially important thought. Honestly, it's one we should have had all along. Our Old Testament reading shows this to us. It reminds us of this. From the moment that God first revealed his name, what he's like, who he intends to be, he began with this. I am a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger. That's what he's slow towards. He's slow to anger. And this is not an unrighteous anger. This is not a road rage type of anger. This is not a power play type of anger. This is not a, we don't know why you're erupting type of anger. This is a justified, righteous anger towards sin and towards anything sinful. And he says, I'm waiting. I'm waiting. I'm slow to anger. I'm merciful and I'm gracious. He's slow to give sin and sinners what's justly deserve. And then he says this, but I'm abounding in love, forgiving iniquity to the thousandth generation. He's slow to anger, but he's fast to love. He's fast to forgiveness. And so friends, if God seems to be delaying, if he seems slow to send Jesus and finish this whole thing, It's not indifference to our personal suffering. It's actually because he's waiting for sinners to be saved. That's significantly different. He's slow to anger and fast to mercy and is therefore, as Peter says here, patient towards you. He wishes for you to be saved. Before that great and final day comes, And verse 10 tells us that day is not going to be slow in arriving. 
It's going to come like a thief in the night. And it will be the greatest day in history for some, but dreadful for others. The the first time God renewed and restored the earth on an earth-altering kind of day, it was through the unending waters of a global flood. It was in the days of Noah. But at Jesus' second coming, it says he's going to renew and restore not only the earth, but the entire cosmos, the entire created order, not through water this time, but with unimaginable heat and fire and atmospheric phenomena. Since no part of creation was left untouched by the consequences of sin, so also no part of creation is beyond the need of God's restoring full-scale work. And so this great day will affect the entire created order, not just the human race, but all of creation. God has not abandoned his original intentions from Genesis chapter 1 when he declared his creation very good. He's been waiting to restore it into its perfect state. He's been patient for our sake. For our sake. I don't think we often see it that way. We just wonder why he's taking so long. Jesus will return when God's patience ends. When the final beloved exile has by faith received Christ as Savior as a living hope. So I wonder, perhaps it's you he's waiting for. Perhaps it's you. Don't delay any longer. And given this awesome reality, Peter then goes on and says, what sort of people ought we to be? And he says, be a prepared people, but in a particular way. Verse 11, since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming day of God? Now, if you've been with us throughout Advent, you're probably tired of hearing about waiting. Okay, waiting is a major theme in Advent, and it makes Advent seem like the very thing I tend to hate, which is waiting in line. When I go to the grocery store, I go to the fast self-checkout line. When I drive, I prefer the left lane. When I go to theme parks, I will buy a fast pass. I don't care how much it costs. It's going to happen. Okay? And when I go to restaurants, I never put my name on a waiting list. I make a reservation because waiting is a form of human torture. It's a malady for the short-sighted. And if that sounds like a Scroogey thing to say, I'm sorry. I also do like Scrooge. But it's true nonetheless. When we say waiting, we typically mean this inactive state. You can see me cringe. This inactive state of staying where one is until something else happens to move something along. Feels so powerless and stuck in the mud. But biblical waiting is different. It's more than inactivity. Like we're in a long line waiting for the redemption of God to come. Peter helps us. He draws out the fuller meaning of what biblical waiting is. He says to wait for, did you see it? And hasten the coming day of God. I like that word. That word hasten, it's one of my favorites in this passage. It's spudantos in Greek. It's a participle that's derived from spudo, which means hurry up. To do something in a hurry. To speed it up. 
So it's insinuating something incredible here, and this changes the ballgame to me with the idea of waiting altogether. We don't just wait for the day, we hasten it. We speed it up. Spudo is the primary word in the story of Zacchaeus. You remember this story, kids? Zacchaeus was a wee little man, and a wee little man was he. He climbed up in the sycamore. Has that not been taught in VBS since 1989? (laughs) To see, okay, I see one hand raised. Great, great. Thank you, William. Zacchaeus was up in the sycamore tree, and it says he was waiting for Jesus to pass by. But do you know what Jesus says to him? Hurry down, Spudo. Hasten the day. And it says that Zacchaeus hurried down, Spudo, to quickly prepare his home for none other than Jesus. The idea of preparing a place for Jesus required great haste. And even more poignantly, Spudo is the emphatic word in our gospel reading from this morning. It describes Mary's response to the angel Gabriel who declared that she, a virgin, would give birth to Jesus, the Messiah. Teenage virgin gives birth to God-man. Sounds like a tabloid. This would have been terrifying news for her to hear. Life-altering news. She had been chased, but now would suffer public scrutiny and shame. She was betrothed to be married, and now she would endure Who knows what kind of relational tension with Joseph and with both of their families. And yet she's the champion of the first advent. John the Baptist announced it, but it says that Mary hastened it. That's the word that's used. Mary said, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her and Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. She didn't stay and wait. She sped up. She made haste. She packed up and moved. She risked life and comfort to prepare the way for Jesus to come. She hastened the day of his arrival. I love this. So it's no wonder then why two translations of this passage in 2 Peter actually translate it waiting for and speeding up the coming day of God. Did you hear that? That that we are active, not passive participants in the timing of God regarding the second coming of Christ. What a privilege. We can speed up the day. Through our personal holiness, it says in verse 11, and our public proclamation, it says in verse 9, We actively participate in ushering in the coming of Christ. It's wild. To think that our personal devotion to God and proclaiming the hope of Christ in word and deed, it plays a role in ushering in the redemption of the world. This is mind-blowing. We're not just waiting. We're speeding it up. And isn't it fascinating that, that a change in us a change in us could really make that much of a difference. I I think if this is true, it should create a spark in our souls to realize that our daily pursuit of God and our surrender to the Spirit's work in our life, our personal holiness plays a role in bringing Christ back to earth. 
that what's going on inside of us by the work of the Spirit is not just ethical, it's eschatological. It's bringing the end to bear. Not just what we're becoming, but the whole redemption of the world. And it seems a little far-fetched or exaggerated, but I see this at Christmas time. In film and literature, I see it in my favorite Christmas work, A Christmas Carol by Charles Dickens. Perhaps you don't want to read 100 pages, though I'll recommend it to you. There's many renditions, movies that have been made. There's a lot of different Scrooges. You've got the George C. Scott Scrooge, the Patrick Stewart Scrooge, the Jim Carrey Scrooge, the Gene Lockhart Scrooge. Uh, A personal family favorite rendition would be the Muppets Christmas Carol, starring Michael Caine. If you're not familiar with who that is, he was in the Batman movies. From Butler to Scrooge, I think he got a promotion. At the end of that story, Ebenezer Scrooge is is visited by the fourth and final ghost. It's the, the ghost of Christmas yet to come or the ghost of Christmas future. You remember what happens? Scrooge is taken as in a realistic vision to the great and final and terrible day of his death. He's presented with his grave. And he has to face that day, that tremendous reality that things are going to end. And what happens is it causes him to wake up. It causes him to wake up as though he's been sleeping all along. He's been taken around in his nightgown throughout all of these visions. And he's finally going to become the person that he always needed to be. Seeing the final day scares him to life. And he's not just a changed person within, is he? He suddenly becomes a generous person without. In other words, whatever happened inside of him seems to be most obviously known outside of him. He throws off self-righteous tendencies. He gets rid of his grumpy attitude. He gets rid of his miserly way of life. And he puts on a compassionate heart that's overflowing with cheerfulness. And this strange thing he's never known before called hope. He hates Christmas. But after facing that day, he hastens it. Everyone's shocked. What happened deepest inside of him because of that day is all of a sudden making a shocking difference to everyone he encounters. That's what we are supposed to become. New Scrooges. Not living grumpy or godless life anymore, but a life that is full of hope, a life that actually hastens the day of Christ. Listen, spiritual laziness prolongs the delay. So wake up and let's make haste. In the name of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Father, we thank you that you are slow to anger, that you are merciful and gracious, abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and sin to the thousandth generation. And Lord Jesus, we know you will return. Would you not only make us people who believe and have hope, but may what you're doing inside of us get out of us and hasten the day of your coming. Until then, we praise and give thanks to you.
Amen.